0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Are you awake? Why is that so funny? In this Advent series called Long Shadow, we've been looking at two main things. First, we've been looking at how there's a part of our lives that is in shadow. Uh, the, the part of who we are, or the part of what our lives are like that we just want to escape from or hide from or change uh, so for Paul McCartney, <clears throat> excuse me, wow, thank goodness for throat coat. Uh, for Paul McCartney, it was insomnia, It's probably lots of other things, and for you I'm sure it's a combination maybe of dozens of things, your, your life circumstance, uh, any relational difficulties you might be having, a particular event that continues to, to bear weight on your present, um, unfulfilled hopes, personality traits, regrets. You name it, these things that combine to create what we call the long shadow, the shadow side of our lives. But second, we've been exploring how God arrives to deal with the long shadow, and how people's reaction to God's arrival are all over the map. And that's because when God arrives, and as we've, we've been seeing through the lens of several biblical stories... God doesn't always arrive in the way or in the times that we might expect. And so people don't always react in the way that we might expect. For example, when God arrived to deal with the long shadow cast by Adam and Eve's disobedience, they hid because they were ashamed and they were afraid of what God was going to do. When God arrived to tell Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son, they laughed because they struggled to believe God's promises, especially as the years crawled by and they remained unfulfilled. So today I want to focus on the story of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah, as the story is told in Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Now last week I built off of Frederick Buchner's description of Abraham as a schlamazel, as somebody who goes through life getting soup spilled on him, and that actually ran in the family. This is a family trait of Abraham and Sarah and then the people descended from them. They were Uh because Abraham's son Isaac, he endured, first of all, this horrific experience of his father attempting to kill him. And he eventually married this, this wonderful woman named Rebecca, but they too experienced infertility just like Abraham and Sarah experienced infertility. But God finally answered their prayer and gave them twin boys. Jacob and Esau. The younger one then deceived Isaac and stole the blessing that was reserved for his brother. And that thieving son was Jacob. Now, as a result of deceiving his father and deceiving Esau, uh, Jacob and Esau didn't have a great relationship. That's an understatement. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to run away. He ran away to his uncle's house, Laban, And when he arrived at Laban's house, he discovered Laban has beautiful daughters. He wanted to marry one named Rachel. So Laban said, all right, you can work for me for seven years, and after those seven years, you can marry Rachel. Somehow, then the tables are turned. Laban deceives Jacob and gives Jacob Leah instead of Rachel on their wedding night. Um, And so Jacob is deceived. He says, right, another seven years you have to work, and then you can marry Rachel. So finally, that happens. And then they discover that they can't have kids. So this issue is certainly a part of their long shadow as, as a family. And their struggle to see God's promise realized is just all part of why Jacob, too, feels like a schlamazel. And eventually he passes on that wonderful trait to his 12 sons, which many of them struggle with similar issues, this schlamazelitis, I guess, that runs in the family. So that's one thing that runs in the family. The other thing that runs in the family, though, are these unique, transformative experiences with God. So just like Abraham and just like Isaac, God chose Jacob to deliver his promise to make a great people that would bless the whole world. It was Jacob. But, you know, after reading Abraham's story and Isaac's story, The kinds of questions we should be asking when we approach Jacob's story are ones like, how is he going to respond to God's arrival? And so far, people haven't responded very well. So is he going to hide? Is he going to laugh? Is he going going to reject God? Is he at all going to be receptive to what God is going to do or what God is going to say? I want to pick up the story then in Genesis 32. This is the part in the story where Jacob is about to be... uh, about to meet with his brother Esau after 20 years of not seeing him. Now, for all Jacob knows, Esau still wants to kill him. So, this is not, he's not looking forward to this meeting. He's, he's very afraid what's going to happen. Jacob wants to make peace, but for all he knows, Esau still wants to seek revenge. So, that's where we are in Genesis 32. And in verse 22, this is just the night before that happens. We read that Jacob's family and all of his livestock and all of his possessions, they cross over the river Jabbok. But for whatever reason, Jacob decides to stay on the opposite shore for the night, uh, maybe because it's a big day coming up. He's going to meet his brother after two decades of, of not seeing him. So maybe he just wanted that time alone to reflect, to prepare for that. Whatever reason, Jacob's family is on that side of the river and he's alone on the other side and he settles down. For a good night's sleep. Now, instead of reading what happens next straight from the Bible, I want to read a section from Frederick Buchner's novel, Son of Laughter. It's a novel based on Jacob's life. And I want to do that. We'll have the the text kind of unfold here on the screen as I go through. But I want to do that because I think this helps us get, imagine the details of the story, imagine the the grit and the emotion and, and everything that's going on. So I'll be reading. Uh, right where Genesis 32 uh, takes us, but from Son of Laughter. Out of the dark, someone leaped at me with such force that it knocked me onto my back. It was a man. I couldn't see his face. His naked shoulder was pressed so hard against my jaw, I thought he would break it. His flesh was chill and wet as the river. He was the God of the river. My bowls had trampled him. My flocks had fouled him. He would not let me cross without a battle. I got my elbow into the pit of his throat and forced him off. I threw him over onto his back. His breath was hot in my face as I straddled him. My breath came in gasps. Quick as a serpent, he twisted loose, and I was caught between his thighs. The grip was so tight I couldn't move. He had both hands pressed to my cheek. He was pushing my face into the mud, grunting with the effort. Then he got me on my belly with his knee in the small of my back, and he was tugging my head up toward him, He was breaking my neck. He was not the god of the river. He was Esau. He had slain all my sons. He had forded the river to slay me. Just as my neck was about to snap, I butted my head upward with the last of my strength and caught him square. For an instant, his grip loosened and I was free. Over and over, we rolled together in the reeds at the water's edge. We struggled in each other's arms. I knew they were not Esau's arms. It was not Esau. I did not know who it was. I didn't know who I was. I knew only my terror and that it was dark as death. I knew only that what the stranger wanted was my life. For the rest of the night, we battled in the reeds with the Jabbok roaring down through the gorge above us. Each time I thought it was lost, I escaped somehow. There were moments when I seemed to be prevailing. It was as if he was letting me prevail. Then he was at me again with new fury but he did not prevail. For hours it went on that way. Our bodies were slippery with mud. We were panting like beasts. We could not see each other. We spoke no words. I did not know why we were fighting. It was like fighting in a dream. He outweighed me. He outwrestled me, but he did not overpower me. He did not overpower me until the moment came to overpower me. When the moment came, I knew that he could have made it come whenever he wanted. I knew that all through the night he had been waiting for that moment. He had his knee under my hip. The rest of his weight was on top of my hip. Then the moment came. He gave a fierce downward thrust. I felt a fierce pain. It was less a pain I felt than a pain I saw. I saw it as light. I saw the pain as a dazzling bird shape of light. The pain's beak impaled me with light. It blinded me with the light of its wings. I knew I was crippled and done for could do nothing but cling now. "'I clung for dear life. "'I clung for dear death. "'My arms trussed him, my legs locked him, "'and for the first time he spoke. "'He said, let me go. "'The words were more breath than sound, "'and they scalded my neck where his mouth was touching. "'He said, let me go, for the day is breaking. "'Only then did I see it, "'the first faint shudder of light "'behind the farthest hills.' I said, I will not let you go. I would not let him go for fear that the day would take him as the dark had given him. It was my life I clung to. My enemy was my life. My life was my enemy. I said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Even if his blessing meant death, I wanted it more than life. Bless me, I said. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said, who are you? There was mud in my ears, my eyes, my nostrils, my hair, and my name tasted of mud when I spoke it. Jacob, I said. My name is Jacob. It is Jacob no longer, he said. Now you are Israel. You have wrestled with God and with men. You have prevailed. I was no longer Jacob. I was no longer myself. Israel was who I was. The stranger had said it. I I tried to say it the way he had said it. Yisrael. I tried to say the new name I was to the new self I was. I couldn't see him. He was too close to me to see. I could see only the curve of his shoulder above me. I saw the first glimmer of dawn on his shoulders like a wound. I said, What is your name? I could only whisper it. Why do you ask me my name? We were both of us whispering, and he did not wait for my answer. He blessed me, As I had asked him, I don't remember the words of his blessing or even if there were words. I remember the blessing of his arms holding me and the blessing of his arms letting me go. I remember as blessing the black shape of him against the rose-colored sky. I remember as blessing the one glimpse I had of his face. It was more terrible than the face of dark or of pain or of terror. It was the face of light. No words can tell of it. Silence cannot tell of it. Sometimes I can't believe that I saw it and lived, but only that I only dreamed I saw it. Sometimes I believe I saw it and that I only dream I live. He never told me his name. The fear of Isaac, the shield of Abraham, others like them are names we use because we do not know his true name. He did not tell me his true name. Perhaps he did not tell it because he knew I would never stop calling on it. But I gave the place where I saw him a name. I named it Peniel. It means the face of God. Now, I obviously picked this passage because it's so straightforward and easy to understand. (laughs) This is a strange story. It's a powerful story. But what's going on here? I think we need to look at some of the details. First of all, who is Jacob actually wrestling with? Because the text first says it's a man... And that's how Buchner imagines Jacob experiencing this. But then pretty soon Jacob discovers this is more than a man. Is it the god of the river? Is it Esau? No, it's God. And some interpreters have identified this person as an angel of God. Others have identified it as God himself. And it's interesting, the prophet Hosea actually refers to both when he describes Jacob's life. He says, in the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. I think the easiest way to reconcile this is to say, it was God himself who arrived in that night and wrestled with Jacob, probably in some kind of angelic form, which is why Hosea says this. And this matches Jacob's own observation where he says, I saw the face of God, and yet my life was spared. So as crazy as it seems, God himself had an all-night wrestling match with Jacob. Okay, that's about as crazy as it gets. And Jacob comes out alive, but limping. But why, then, was God wrestling with Jacob? I think that's the most important question. And we're not given a whole lot of clues about that. And really, only one thing is clear, which is Jacob gets out of this wrestling match with a new name, a new identity, Israel. And that name, Israel, then later becomes the name of an entire nation that would descend from his 12 sons. So Israel, that word, means he struggles with God. And this, I think, is our best clue to what's going on, that God is arriving here at the scene in order to give Jacob a new name and a new identity as one who struggles with God. And to help Jacob remember that new identity, God dislocates his hip. That seems pretty harsh, though, doesn't it? It seems, it's a little unnecessary. Because Jacob is saying, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And God responds, okay, I'll bless you. I'm going to give you the new identity, one who struggles with me. You wouldn't expect Jacob to respond, oh, awesome. Thanks, God. That is a, wow. But that's kind of how he does respond. He's amazed, actually. He's amazed that he wrestled with God and survived. That's his reflection on what just happened. And you can kind of imagine him limping into camp the next morning and his wife seeing him being like, you look horrible. What in the world happened to you? And, and him sharing the story saying, you wouldn't believe it. God wrestled with me all night. He dislocated my hip. I'm a new man. <laughs> I mean, that, that's how he's responding to, to this, this event. And here's why I think that strikes us as strange. I think it strikes us as strange because we assume that when God arrives, He's going to get rid of our struggles. It's a pretty common assumption that God's going to fix things, that God's going to get rid of that long shadow, make it disappear. Like when God arrives, I should feel less like a shamazzle than I did before. But Jacob's story turns that assumption on its head. Because God's arrival here doesn't mean that Jacob's struggle disappears but it completely changes so his his struggle is now one who struggles with God instead of one who struggles without God and it's exactly the same for us so like Jacob God has invited you into a real relationship with him where you get to struggle with him where you get to hold on to Him for dear life, where you can beg God to to bless you and hear your prayers, um, only to realize, having been invited into that kind of relationship, that the blessing begins with the very fact that you get to struggle with God instead of struggling against Him or struggling without Him. Let me ask you this. Would you rather go through life as someone who struggles with God or as someone who struggles without God? I had to ask a pretty similar question at key moments when I was growing up with my brother. Uh, I had only one serious fight with my brother Russ, and I can remember exactly where we were in our garage when he grabbed me by my coat and slammed me up against our blue Conaline van, you know, ones at the sliding doors. And then, with all the strength I, I could muster in my 12-year-old body, I just took my fist around and bam! Decked him across the face. Oh, it felt so good. <laughs> um, it's the only time I've ever done that. And fighting like that was was pretty rare for us. But man, could we get at each other? I mean, we know we knew how to, and still do, how to press each other's buttons. And so I had to ask myself at key times, alright, would I rather be someone who struggles with my brother or someone who struggles without a brother? And, I mean, it's a no-brainer for me. Of course I'd rather be someone who struggles with a brother. I can't imagine my life without my brother. I love him so much. Yeah, he annoys me, and we get at each other, but... I want to I want to struggle with him. And that is true to such an infinitely greater extent when it comes to our relationship with God. I mean I even though life with God can be a struggle I would so much rather be someone who struggles with God than someone who goes through life struggling without God. So for me that invitation is incredibly good news. And I think that's why Jacob is is reacting the way he is. It's good news for him as well. And I think there's several reasons for that. I want to work through those after I have more throat coat. So I think it's good news first because of what I already said. You get to wrestle with God. Like at the most basic level that statement affirms the fact that there is a personal God with whom you get to wrestle, a God who cares about you enough to enter into the mess of your life so that you have that God to struggle with, to hear your prayers, to receive your complaints, to have a good fight with you every once in a while and then reassure you of his promises. That's pretty amazing, that fact alone, that that is possible. That is a a relationship that God invites you into. But second, it's good news because we can wrestle with God and survive. Now, it might not strike you, I think in our 21st century context, we we have a very different uh, natural assumptions about who God is. Well, Jacob's assumption is that God was way bigger than he is. Um, And what he knew about himself is that he was, at heart, he was a deceptive person. He deceived his father. He deceived Esau. There's probably a lot more deception in his life that we don't read about in Genesis. He, de- he was a deceiver. And he knew that deception can't be around God. Like God is infinitely bigger, infinitely more holy, pure goodness. And so deception can't be around God. Like it's, it disintegrates in God's presence. And Jacob knew that, which is why... After wrestling with God, he's amazed. He's like, I, I've been with God. I've seen God face to face. I've been in the mud with God. And I'm alive. That's amazing. In other words, he's recognizing that God has been gracious to him. God could have snapped his neck. That's how Buchner imagines it. But he just dislocates his hip. So he, God blesses him. He's gracious to him. He gives him this new identity which is a gracious, a gracious action in and of itself. And he survives. And God does the same with you. We'll get to that in a second. Because um, the third reason why this is good news is because while in the midst of wrestling with God, God is actually wrestling for you, not against you. The name Israel has another possible meaning in addition to one who struggles with God. It can also mean... God struggles. In other words, I think the identity that God was giving Jacob here was a hybrid one one who struggles with God and one for whom God struggles. And that became Jacob's identity and then the identity of this whole nation. And it was that second part, the one for whom God struggles, that enabled Israel to survive. I mean, if it was only up to them to struggle with God good enough so that they could maintain this relationship, they would have failed thousands of times. But because they were in a relationship with God where God struggled for them, it means that they were, they were able to continue in this story, continue in their struggle, keep their hope alive that God was going to fulfill all of his promises in due time. And for followers of Jesus, if that's where you are today, This is true in a much deeper sense because Jesus, his mission was to be everything that the people of Israel were not. Jesus' mission was, was to succeed where Israel failed, to be the true Israel, the fulfillment of all of their hopes and desires. So as God in the flesh, Jesus accomplished that mission first by becoming one of us by struggling with us. But then he ultimately accomplished that mission by struggling for us, in our place, as our representative. So his, his suffering and his death and then his resurrection were all in our place so that we know that our life struggle does not have to end in death. It does not have to end in judgment. It can end in life because we know that God is for us. Because we've seen it definitively demonstrated in Jesus. So in Jesus, God has definitively struggled for you. So that you can be an overcomer. So that you can have hope and you can have forgiveness and you can have life in the midst of our ordinary uh, life struggles. This is what John is talking about, one of Jesus' initial 12 disciples When he was writing to the the early church and in his first letter when he said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, so Jesus is this Messiah come to fulfill all of Israel's hopes, everyone who believes has been born of God and everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, this doesn't mean that suddenly our struggles disappear. That's not what it means to be an overcomer in Jesus but it means that now in the midst of our struggle, we can approach God in confidence. We can talk to God. We we can have hope because of the forgiveness and the definitive hope that we have in Jesus. That's what it means to be an overcomer. So we can know that whatever your struggle looks like right now or what it will look like, um, whatever suffering you have are or will endure, because of Jesus, you can know with confidence that God is with you and that God is for you in the midst of all of that. And just a fourth and final reason that I think all of this is good news is because in that wrestling with God in and that, in that struggling, we become more like God. And that's what happened with Jacob. When Jacob wrestled with God, even though it hurt, even though it left him with that limp, Jacob came out of that wrestling match more convinced that God is for him, uh, more convinced that God had something good in store for him because he gave him a new identity, he gave him hope. And this had a huge impact on Jacob's life. Um, if you look at how the story continues in Genesis 33, Jacob gets to that moment where he's, he's going to meet Esau in the field. This is going to happen, and he doesn't, anything can happen really, but Esau does this unexpected thing. Um, Jacob had sent uh, in front of him all of this livestock, all of these gifts to Esau, hoping to to soften their meeting. And so when when Esau meets Jacob, he embraces him, and he weeps with his brother, and they kiss each other, and, and in an instant, it's like their relationship is restored. But it wasn't because of the gifts that Jacob sent ahead, because after that, and Esau sees all of this livestock and gifts that Jacob wants to give, he's like, what's all this? What's the meaning of all this stuff? And you can imagine Jacob has lived his life by deceiving people, doing something to get a certain result for himself. You can imagine his, his surprise. And Jacob the deceiver would have been, oh, you don't, you don't want those? Okay, I'll take my livestock back. I'll take <laughs> these gifts back. No, it's like all of a sudden he realizes it doesn't matter what I get out of this. I want to be generous. (laughs) I want to be good to you. Because he says to Esau, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you for God has been gracious to me and I have all that I need. In other words, I think that encounter with God has changed Jacob from Jacob the deceiver to Jacob the giver. He doesn't need to use his stuff anymore to deceive people and to get what he wants. Um, he can now freely give because God has been gracious to me and I have all that I need. I want to show you the same kind of generosity I've experienced, in other words. And That's what, that's what happens when you encounter God. That's what happens when God invites you into a real relationship with Him and you begin to to wrestle with Him and do life in relationship with God. You can't be the same. God begins to change you. Change you into someone who's more humble because you get to wrestle with God. Change you into someone who's more gracious because God has wrestled for you. He has been gracious to you. Change you into someone who's more grateful. So you might be limping you know, you might still be in the midst of struggles. But I think this, this good news that we've been talking about enables us to say, man, it's good to be alive. It's good to be alive in relationship with God as someone who struggles with God instead of someone who struggles without God. And it's good to be alive as someone for whom God struggles. So Paul McCartney... Uh, sings that when you find yourself in times of trouble, the way of wisdom is to let it be. I think there's some truth in that. Um, Next week, actually, we're going to explore Mary's story. That that was a part of her story, of letting it be. But that has to go along with not letting God go. Whatever you want to let be, it always has to be combined with not letting God go, of wrestling with Him, of clinging to Him, of fighting for that, that relationship. And that is the way of Jesus, that he's invited us to follow this robust way of of bringing everything we are to God, of of interacting with him in in this real relationship of wrestling with God, but also resting in God as the one for whom God has struggled. So this Advent season, it's about God arriving. It's about our expectation of what will happen. When God arrives. Well, we've seen that when God arrives, he's not going to take away our struggles. We're not necessarily going to become more prosperous or better off. But when God arrives, he will be with you, and he is with you in the midst of those struggles. And he's not only with you, but he's for you. And not only that, he gives you a promise that he's going to arrive one day to complete it all, to make all things new as the ultimate hope of God with us and for us. So please pray with me. Mighty God, with humility we we know that we're not able to see the plan that you have for us, for the people that you love. Uh, But in faith, we, we can see Jesus, and we can see Jacob. And when, when we see Jesus in particular, we, we're overwhelmed because we see your own humility. We see your, your holiness working, working itself out in the midst of us. So we thank you for that, God. We thank you for entering into our world and struggling with us, and struggling for us so that we can be comforted and strengthened, so that we can be freed from our bondage to struggle. Even if we might struggle, struggle this is not a reality. We are not uh, bound to it. We are free. Uh, so thank you for that freedom, and thank you for giving us uh, the courage to believe and the courage to follow, which we need every day. So we claim you, God, as, as holy. We claim you as the one who is for us in Jesus the one who is worthy to be praised. Amen. So remember as you leave that because of Jesus, you can be someone for whom God struggles. And that is what makes all of the other struggle possible. And the struggling with God, with the hope that he gives, possible. So I think Hebrews 4 captures that beautifully. I'd love you to stand with me. I'm going to use this as our benediction. So receive this benediction from Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. Go in grace.